Hello, I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And this is Two Teachers Talking. Kinda. Well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> there, there goes my share of the introduction. Yeah, for those of you who've been listening to us, you know it's Tony and I talking, and occasionally we've brought in some people from the outside. But today it's going to be Many Teachers Talking, a special edition of our podcast where we've brought in three educators who we know to kind of share their ideas and their thoughts about education and what's happening in teaching and language teaching and being educators in Japan. And it's our 49th episode, episode number 49. And we went to a small place in Osaka, which is what's going to account for the strange kind of studio-less, <laughs> non-studio quality sound you're about yeah, to hear. Yeah, apologies for that in advance. And it, it's not it's not you, it's not your headphones. Uh, it's uh, not our microphones. A dis- it's a distinct drop in quality because though we were in a pretty noisy environment. But um, the content is good. So um, it I think it's probably worth the listen. So again, but uh, yeah, sincere apologies for the for the noise. Yeah, there'll be a lot of background noise and clanging around, but we needed to find a central Osaka spot that was easily accessible for everybody and equally accessible for everyone. So, Tony, I think that you want to add anything to No, I think let her rip. Yeah, we're going to just leave this and uh I'll let you guys just decide for yourselves and listen. We think it's a, a very interesting episode and you probably will enjoy hearing people other than the two of us talk. <laughs> okay, so without further ado, five teachers talking. So, here we are. This is uh Tony Silva and Charles Wiz. And we're in the middle of Osaka, in Umeda, Osaka, and here with um Three esteemed colleagues. Uh, they're going to talk about uh, uh, their teaching instead of us. So it's going to—it's a whole lot of teachers talking, and not the usual two airheads. Who are they? <laughs> they oh, those guys! I know them well. The airheads. Okay. So, so we're sitting here with uh, Allison Kitzman, uh, associate professor at Kinky University. Hello. And uh, DJ Condon, headmaster of Canadian Academy. Hello. All righty. And Francis Shibahara, assistant professor at Kobe Shoin Women's University. Hi. And they're going to be talking to us about uh, their teaching and how it has and hasn't changed over the years. Oh, but it has. <laughs> well, tell us all about it. That's an opening. <laughs> well, but before um, we begin, Allison, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, as uh, Tony mentioned, I work at Kinky University. I am in the business department now. I started there as a part-timer 17 years ago have been full-time for a while, and teach primarily business English and business content courses in English. Um, I'm also the native English coordinator, and that's really my job. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I kind of have to start off by saying that I'm one of the only people that I know who has, how do I say, been teaching English and trained as an English teacher before I even came to Japan. Okay, um, this is my 30th year in education. Um, I did 10 years in uh, Florida public school where I taught um, English as a second language and also um, IB higher level English. Um, Then for the last 20 years I've been working in international schools in Europe but um, mostly Asia. Um, primarily Chinese cultures. This is just my third year in Japan, so I'm just uh, finding out about 
Japanese culture. Right. And DJ, interestingly enough, you were in Myanmar. I was in Myanmar at a very. How many people do you know have taught in? For how long? Uh, I was there for two years at a pretty traumatic time in Myanmar history. Uh, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Tell us where you've been. Yeah. And just give um, us a well, so there. let's see. Florida Public Schools. I was in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Um, then I was in Taipei, Taiwan for a long time. My three kids all graduated from school there. Um, there I also taught um, a philosophy class called the IB Theory of Knowledge class, um, um, an examiner for that. Then I went to Myanmar. Then I was at Hong Kong International School uh, where I did not teach. I was just uh, associate head of school or head of school. And then here I've been teaching, uh, up until this year, I've been teaching Theory of Knowledge class. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, my case is quite different. I haven't taught in lots of different places. I came to Japan um, t nearly 25 years ago, and I started, like a lot of people, um, I just got my uh, qualifications before coming, and um, I worked at Eikaiwa, and then I moved up, did my master's degree, and then I started working part-time, and... Um, I intended to go full-time, but then um, I had my children, so I had three children, and I ended up teaching part-time for 17 years, um, a really long time. But that was great, and it's really um, a great thing to do when you have uh, children working part-time in the Japanese university system. And then just last year, I uh, changed to full-time. So uh, this is a whole new ball game, really, being full-time, being in on the decisions and committee meetings and all sorts of things. So uh, it's really interesting seeing the other side of university, not just the classroom, but uh, how the decisions are made. And that's an amazing kind of transition. 17 years as part-time and then going to full-time, which probably makes you the only person, I think, other than moi. <laughs> who did that. I think I was part-time for about 17 years. Oh, really? Yeah, yes. and that was lucky. So it's a very unusual thing to do. So. But I think, um, you know, um, it really gives me a perspective that some of the other professors don't have on the life of a part-timer. And we were discussing about part-timers in a meeting the other day, and some of the professors assumed that most of the part-timers had full-time jobs at another university, and just taught one day a week in our university. And um, I had to say, no, this is not the reality of um, foreigners living in Japan. Most foreigners living in Japan are full-time part-timers. They're teaching, you know, 12, 15 koma a week, some of them even more than that. Um, so uh, I think this gives me a good perspective on things that part-timers want, things that they need. Okay, so let's go to this really interesting question I think we have, which is how has your, your ideas about teaching evolved, not evolved, changed, not changed? And um, let's start with DJ. And, you know, for example, DJ, when you started teaching, you mentioned you started out in Florida yeah. teaching. What were some of the, when you got in teaching, what were some of the ideas you had, some of the beliefs that were really motivating you and, you know, kind of directing and affecting your teaching? Well, number one, I, I was motivated by the fact that I like kids, um, and I like to see them Oops. learn. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, most of my experience has been in the K-12 setting. I, I've taught some graduate-level courses for SUNY Buffalo in curriculum design and leadership, but the vast majority of my experience is in um, a K-12 setting, um, which, is, which is really more kid-oriented. So I really like kids. 
And, and I think you can use the term kids there, right? Whereas we say our kids, right? When I, we talk oh, about students. I always use that. No, you're always term. respectable yeah. and use students or something. No, no, no. I my kids. <laughs> okay, my but kids. please. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when I was starting out, I, I think um, I, really, I really believed uh, that the key to effective teaching, as a master teacher at my school said, was maximization of personality. Um, and by that, what he meant was not that you had to have an oversized personality in order to be effective, but that um, there needed to be a good match between the personality of the teacher and the personality of the student. Um, you know, we, we know about learning styles, different um, intelligences that kids have. We know about the importance of accessing prior learning and uh, that, that sort of thing. That, all of that is still true to, today. I think um, we have to look at, you know, that connection between, that very personal connection between teacher and student. That, that remains the foundation for effective teaching, I think. Allison, how about you? Actually, I quite concur. Uh, I, I think I think you said the whole conversation. <laughs> okay, we're done. DJ, we're done. <laughs> um, I, I quite concur with personality because, as an administrator, I find that most of the issues that I have from the administrative position are teachers who can't connect with their students, and for whatever reason, culture shock, whatever, <laughs> they just can't imagine being a kid themselves. Um, yeah. Or a learner. Uh, or, or a learner, right? Yeah. And another yeah. issue, maybe this is going a little off topic, but the idea that, a lot, again, a lot of the issues that I end up with, excuse me, are teachers who haven't learned Japanese or don't understand Japanese culture, and they often find different conflicts with that. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying, Francis, mm -hmm. is that the full-time teachers, the native Japanese, I mean the local Japanese, often have no idea what it is to teach students who aren't as interested in learning English as they were. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And so that, that hasn't affected how I teach, but that has affected how I've been as an administrator. Can you give an example? How, how do you approach that? How do I approach it? I mean, you have somebody, let's say, who is in that, you know, that kind of sense, right? They, they're not making the connection. Well, what would you do? it's a teaching opportunity, and I, on, I feel rather bad that I'm maybe the one doing the teaching, but working hand-in-hand hand with your other teachers, your colleagues, you know, having asking another teacher to help another teacher. Yeah. Um, of course, kid gloves and being nice and then also being a mediator between the teacher and the student and the university. But again, that's kind of not how my teaching has changed. <laughs> okay. Francis, yeah. how about you? Well, I think it's a great point about um, teachers who are not learners and especially if you, we're all talking about teaching English um, <coughs> here in this situation people who have not learned a language, sometimes they don't understand how embarrassing it feels if you get the pronunciation wrong and how you don't want to stand up in front of the whole class and exactly. say something. But I think to go back to um, something that DJ said about you like children, and I think the reason that I've been teaching this long and I still love my job and I still get excited about going into the classroom is because... I like the students, and I can't really understand it when I hear 
teachers saying, oh, they're terrible and sorts of things. And I think it's to do with, they haven't connected. It's just, as you say, that somehow they haven't connected. And um, the um, so an example, it wasn't me, but a colleague of mine, in um, she was teaching at um, the university and they were very low level um, fashion major students. And they were in the classroom thinking, why do we have to learn English? We don't like this. And they were in the room with a um, female professor, a Japanese female professor, who had a PhD from a foreign university. And they had absolutely nothing in common with her. And she reflected on it and she realized that her whole life she'd been a very successful language learner. And she had learned languages very easily and she'd enjoyed it. And she realized she had to completely change her teaching style because these were people who had never enjoyed learning English and they had come through a situation where they didn't like it. And um, so they sort of um, disliked her because she was so different than them. But once she managed to find some common ground, mm -hmm. and I think this is what you were talking mm -hmm. about, because the idea of match the personality, you're never going to match every single student right. you teach. But finding common ground, I think um, that's really a good point about yeah. teaching. I agree, yeah. I agree. You know, I, I think also um, what's changed is that today we know more about effective teaching and more about the science of learning than ever before. Mm. Um, if you look at people like John Hattie and um, Robert Marzano who are doing meta-analytic studies, we have a strong empirical base about what is very effective and what isn't. And top of the list is that, that teacher-student relationship. But some of the things that we thought were effective and we're all we're all um, you know sort of victims of our own schooling right if, yeah, if you will definitely well, I'm a victim um, of my own experience yeah. <laughs> yeah let's inflict that on our students yeah. hey. well that's it everybody's got opinions about education because yes. everybody's gone to school yes. right so uh, everybody yes. has an idea of how it should happen right and yet a lot of it's counterintuitive in, in terms of what really works would right? you give some examples of that because well, I think um, some of them um, from Hattie are really interesting. Yeah, like homework. Homework and, and teacher knowledge, subject knowledge, Yeah, right? teacher subject knowledge is, is not as um, highly correlated with um, learning as, as you might expect. So what, what do you mean by that in our situation here, teacher subject knowledge? Well, uh, I don't know about your situation, but I, I know that... That was a Well, just that... Uh, I think a really good teacher can teach almost anything. Yeah. And, and um, part of that, though, goes back to what we were talking about before, about lifelong learning. It's really critical now um, for teachers to be learners themselves. And I actually look at myself as being a professional learner. So I can learn virtually anything, right? And if I'm, you know, it's that old saw about just staying one step ahead of the class. Oh yeah, I've been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> so I have no understanding. Yes. Sometimes Tony, it's some do you understand? Of your most no, no, no. Energetic no, no, no. Teaching, we don't understand. Right? That's <laughs> how I learned my Japanese was by learning the vo the business vocabulary in order to teach it to my students. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned a lot of Japanese that way. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Mm. So I agree, lifelong learning, training of teachers, and one of my questions for this specific event here is: so how do you? Encourage
encourage teachers to learn lifelong, go research, whatever they need to do? Yeah. Well, uh, we provide a lot of opportunities for it. Um, for example, and again, my K-12 setting is very different from your setting, but we have an early release once a week where um, the kids all leave early and then their PD sessions. That's why Sophie yeah. comes. My daughter comes <laughs> yeah. home early on Wednesdays. That's, that's I never correct. knew why. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> then, like, she doesn't care yeah. what the reason is. But okay. Yeah. Um, and so, f for example, this year I bought everybody in the school a copy of John Hattie's Vis um, Visible Learning. And where do you get that fiscal? Um, well, that's. Part of I, your budget. Yeah, I control the budget. Oh, <laughs> yes. I like Suddenly, you. the room became very quiet, and everybody politely looked at DJ and said, Does this mean I'm buying the beer? Where's the budget? Where's the budget? Where's our copies? I think it, but that actually, you know, in terms of an overall PD budget, that is extremely cheap. You know, as opposed cost to... Cost-effective. Yeah, very cost-effective. Sorry, I have a question. So you bought the book, but then... Um, did you have, you know, discussion groups or reflection yes. on how um, this had affected Yeah, so we have um, what we call um, teacher learning communities, TLCs, that are professional learning communities, where the teachers organize themselves about what, they, what it is they want to learn about. And we, we encourage them to use that book. It's available, so we encourage them to use that book and look at a strategy. So, for example... Um, Hattie's research shows that one of the most effective means uh, for improving student learning is through feedback, high-quality feedback. So we've got several groups who've read that chapter on feedback. Then they're doing some action research about how to um, uh, give better feedback. And then, and then we look at the results. Yeah, we've talked about it a couple of times. Yeah. Because since um, talking with you, DJ, mm -hmm. right, I've gotten read Hattie's book, and I think I've told you that, and I've told this to Tony a number of times, that the idea of feedback, though, but we got to really mention that it's not... Define it, it's, yeah. Yeah, define <laughs> that that feedback is not from... It's because in our field of, like, language teaching, it's corrective feedback. It's providing feedback on the student's performance and production. But what Hattie says, which is truly amazing, and you ha I think you have to explain a little bit more about, you know, Hattie, what he's done, is that what Hattie says is, no, 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 no. It's the feedback that the teacher gets from the student that has the highest impact on the effectiveness of the teacher. And I think as teachers, we often think, and I interpret it as, oh, I have to improve the feedback I give my students. Mm -hmm. But it's no, it's getting feedback on what are the students learning? What are they not learning? What are they understanding? I think I call that paying attention to your class. Yeah, but it is. Yeah. What, what is it? He says. He says, "Know thy impact." Yeah, know right? thy impact. You, I, I think yeah. you, you quote that every time yeah, we go yeah, out. I hear that impact. at least once from you. I, I agree it's with. Good for, yeah. I, I agree with Allison. It is about knowing your class, and it's right. about paying attention. And again, because we know students learn differently. Exactly. It means knowing them as individuals. What's, what's going to work with one student is not going to work with another But student. then I'm going to ask again, in our atmosphere where most of the part-time teachers are teaching a minimum of 20 different 90-minute classes, five or six days a week, they've got family, they've got you know a house, all of that stuff, they're exhausted at the end of the day. How are you expect? oh, I'm sorry, and 35, 45 students a class, yes. how do you expect them? to, one, even 
even care at the end of a long, hard day, yeah. <laughs> let alone know their students' names or their individual students. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, to do with the feedback, so this is very interesting for me, and I've been doing a lot of reading about um, teacher evaluation and things like that, and I think, in general in Japan, it's completely ineffective. The Ministry of Education wants us to do um, evaluation. Um, I don't know if you know about this, DJ. We give out, um, like, at scales, generally, at the end of the semester. That's when you say, um, uh, you give a statement like, your teacher was always well prepared. Strongly agree, agree, neither agree nor disagree. Oh, evaluations. Yes, evaluations, yeah. So the, like, at scales. And then you get given a number. So maybe you are a 3.5 on being well prepared. And, you know, I just feel this kind of feedback is not helping teachers at all, really. And And teachers look at it and they just think, oh, I'm not going to get fired this semester it's not improving their teaching at all well we require reflections right i think the course evaluations are fairly standard at most universities nowadays my university for a number of years now requires reflections but the issue that charles and tony have talked about as well as my teachers and friends we've all talked about a lot is so many of these evaluation questions have nothing to do with us as a teacher yes so again, what? How do you expect a teacher to? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very lucky. At one of my schools, the student evaluation includes three uh, empty oh, blank questions, yeah, so that, that you can ask your own questions of the students and get those students. And the other part of it is that all, I think, all the, the evaluations that I'm required to do also have a spot for students to. Just write you know, freely their own in their own words, their own comments and things about the class, which I each time strongly, <laughs> strongly suggest that they do because that it, I find just way more meaningful, as you said, than yeah. the number, right? Because but I agree with you totally. However, I just I really encourage them to write things, but so often I get things like. I love you. Exactly. You you know, what did you like about this class, the teacher? Yes. And it's just not helping me. And whether they think that it... Because you do it at the end of the semester, whether they think it might aid them in getting a better grade or something. I mean, obviously, we leave the classroom when they're doing the evaluations, but... Most um, teachers. But actually, most Japanese... I would say that... And maybe you have more experience in other countries, but Japanese students in general write very kind things about that. Yeah, it becomes a popularity contest. Yes, it's not a true evaluation. We can't go into our staff. We can't even go into each other and say, hey, what what were your scores? Yeah. Because it's not valid from class to class. The evaluation isn't particularly valid or reliable. Yeah, and and the other other thing is that the few students who do write something that is a little more to the point, a little more, the the sample is so small, you really don't know what to make of it, you know, whether it's a reflection of that individual student or something that's happening in the class. Because the the people who actually write those comments, the number of those is so small. Well, you know, it's a... I've been involved with the design of, of pretty radical new teacher evaluation systems in my last couple schools, so I, I've, um, yeah, I've got a little bit of background on this. You know, it's, it's somewhat analogous to writing uh, the, the student who receives a, an essay back where it says, 
in the margins, good, 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 right? <laughs> I don't you know. know. I've never written one of those. <laughs> <have> you? <laughs> I mean, it, we're, because really what we're talking about here is the nature of the feedback, right? And if, and if the feedback is not specific and if it's not detailed, then um, it's, not, it's not helpful. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, we can't design systems where um, you do elicit detailed, specific feedback. Um, but again, me, we're not doing the designing. Um, in, in my system, I, I think we have, a, we have an opportunity in a, um, to, to build cohesion in the system in the sense that we're standards-based. We're an IB world school, International Baccalaureate world school. So for every class, there are standards um, so that the students always know, uh, you know, what does it take to be successful in that class? And, um, and so this comes out in rubrics and, and so on. The same principles hold with teacher evaluation. So we have a standards-based teacher evaluation system. We have teacher standards, we have a rubric for that, um, and we have a mechanism in place um, to provide that feedback to the teachers against those standards. So what do you do with bad teachers? Can't, we can't do a thing. We can't even look at our at their evaluations. We're not allowed. Yeah, well, that's that's bad. <laughs> so, so what do you do? All right, well, and that's a wrap. <laughs> well, you have to um, again. You know, we're in the the human growth. I don't want to say industry because I hate business metaphors in education, but we're all about human development, right? So um, the you know the. We want our teachers to grow and develop as well. So when we recognize that teachers are lacking in a certain area, then we seek to give them feedback about how to improve with specific ideas, you know, send them to workshops, give them books, give them resources, whatever it takes, work with other teachers in order to upskill them. And if they just can't do it, well, then we're in a different situation and that we move them on. <laughs> well, do you, also, you could also say that you use the evaluations in a formative sense, as a formative assessment rather than just a summative assessment, which is, I think, how we see it at the end of the semester. Right. Right. In other words, it's a tool for growth. Absolutely. Rather than some kind of administrative system for um, fulfilling faculty development needs that comes from the Ministry of Education. Would you well, even ask questions like, by the way, does a teacher start the class on time? Uh, well, we also have the students give feedback on the teachers, and there's there are questions similar to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But recently, um, so I'm doing a doctorate at the moment, and I've been doing some reading about it's about reflection, and it's called reflection in action, reflection on action, and reflection on the future. And it was very interesting. And once I read about this in the module and then I started doing this so reflection in action was having a notebook during the class and making notes during the class of things that I was doing that weren't working very well and actually talking about how your teaching changes but this was in a very short period of time we all know that group work works well and you try to get students into groups and then sometimes when you have these huge classes and they're all groaning about having to move their bags and things like that and sometimes you just think oh I'll just let it go and let them just work with the person sitting next to them or something like that and then when I was doing this reflection in action I noticed, you know, and I made a note of it, 
that actually they were just talking Japanese when they were with the, their friend next to them. And because I had actually written that down myself in a notebook, and I read it when I went back to my office, and it really made it clear to me, oh, you know, you have to make more effort, Francis. You have to put them in groups at the beginning. And then this semester we've begun, and I just, from the beginning of the semester, I said, this is your group, and I mixed them up so they weren't with the friends. And it was just something I'd become lazy with my teaching, you know, with the students um, didn't like, you know, they wanted to sit with their friends, the students didn't like it. So I had gradually, you know, gone in that direction. And then because I'd actually reflected on it, specifically at that time, it forced me to change. So I just wonder with the whole idea of evaluation from students is not giving feedback to the teachers and it really is the teachers have to look for the signals and that's what you said right at the beginning and I think maybe it's encouraging teachers to note down what worked and what didn't work and maybe getting groups of teachers together without um, a, set, a power difference you know everybody's doing the same classes and you know what worked in your class what didn't work in your class and actually Maybe getting teachers just to um, vocalise things that are going well and not going well. And that encourages people to change, I think. Can I be a really negative Nelly? Yeah. Is there a phrase? No, like a no, everybody else says yes. But again, it's, no. it's, and this podcast too is preaching to the choir. It's not the choir I know. That's, I know. that's an issue. How do you get the other people? But anyway, can I can I go back to your yeah. idea and a little bit more of a practical thing about your how do you get the groups to yes. to, to whatever get together and stop yeah. speaking Japanese or less? One of the things that I actually have changed um, fairly recently, and I stole this from my colleague Joshua, is he uses I don't know if it's like chopsticks or something like that, but it gave me the idea to have numbered seats. Right. which I hate to have assigned seats, um, even though it is easy to learn people's names. But every week, they're, they're pulling a like a chopstick with a number, and every single week, they're, you know, seat number one to this week at the front of the class in front of me, haha. Or maybe they're seat number 21 in the back of the class. Every single week, they have a new partner, and it really shuffles everything. Yeah, And that's just first thing right as they walk in the door. Well, I, I think these ideas are great, and I think a lot of it is... So my point was really that I knew this, and I'd read it, and I'd done it before, but gradually, you know, without discussing enough with other teachers, you slip into bad habits, inertia. basically. Yes, inertia. That's really, really a good point about like forgetting things that you learned before, yes. and you, know, you do something that works really well, and somehow the next year you don't remember to do it. And then it's gone. Or it doesn't Until, work like, four, with that class. Right, or, or that, right? But four or five years go by, it's like, wait a minute, I used to do this, and it worked really yes. well. Or, like you said, you find something that works really well one year, and you try it again, yeah. and you're actually excited about it, you try it the next year, and lead balloon. <laughs> a silent classroom. Yes. You know, there's, there's something else, Francis, that you brought up that I, I think points to a big shift in, in what's happened in education from when I started to what's going on now. When I started, you had your four walls. You know, I was in public school. You go in your classroom, you shut the door, and you're left alone, right? Which Richard Elmore calls this uh, loose coupling, 
where the administrator's job then is basically to shield you from the outside world. <laughs> and you just go in there and you kind of do your magic. I like that. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, the, that's not what we have anymore. Yeah, right? you know, to, education is, is a lot more public, <laughs> right? Um, Grumpy comment. <laughs> Um, we want we want teachers to collaborate to get yes. teachers to share with each other. Yeah, hey, how did this go? To go into each other's classrooms, to observe and give feedback, teacher to teacher feedback. Right? That very that's valuable. new, right? It's but definitely, this has to be supportive. So I think sometimes people view when somebody comes into their classroom. And I remember one time I was teaching, and somebody just knocked on the door, and they came in, and they were holding a clipboard, and they said, "Do you mind if I just come in?" And he was holding the clipboard, and he was in my class. And, you know, I just... That's just nothing um, at all. Yes, yes, of course. And, you know... How do and, you say no? Yes, exactly. May I have a lawyer present? Yes, yeah, exactly. And you know what? He had heard that the students liked my class, and he wanted to come in and see what I was doing, but I didn't feel like that. I felt like... He had a clipboard, and he was writing down comments to get me fired. And I was just like, you know, what do I do? And my whole teaching personality changed, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to stick with, you know, this lesson plan and the textbook, and I'm not going to do any of the stuff that I usually do. So I think this observation has to be really not a powerful person looking at you, like when you did teacher training. You have the teacher trainer comes in and they make notes and you feel terrified. And after you've done the lesson, they tell you how terrible you were. And I think we have to change that <laughs> horrible perception. <laughs> well, maybe that was only me. Well, just imagine how our students feel. Yeah. Right? Because that's, that's basically the same thing. When we're assessing them, we're testing them. They're under this incredible amount of pressure. And there you are watching to but make sure. But they're used to it here. They're trained to well, be Well, I'm, I'm used to people watching here. to try to find fault with what I'm doing, too. Well, I well mean, it's a mutual thing, isn't it? Right? I mean, because they're, they're our students, I mean, they are, in, in a way, they are professional students. They've spent their entire life in, sitting in classroom seats evaluating teacher after teacher after teacher. So at the beginning of the year, you walk in a classroom, you're, you're stepping into, uh, in, in front of an audience, that's used to teachers coming in and seeing, okay, what, what are you going to do? What can you do? And we've what, forgotten. What are you able to? And, and us, you know, until so we go back and, we, and we're looking, at, we walk into the classroom and say, okay, what kind of class are you oh, going to be? <laughs> which, which set of problems are you going to present? You know, what are you, what are, you know, is this going to be? Is this going to be a party? Is this going to be work? Is this going to be a test? Is this going to be hell? Who are you? And, so, and that that first day of the semester is always a it's a it's an interesting time and it's really important. Uh, well, that's when in. you establish the norms, right? Oh, absolutely. That first yeah. day is critical. We call that setting a tone. <laughs> <laughs> I like your way better, though. That's where you establish norms. There's a, a better ring to it. Well, I think there's an important point is that we can't assume that people just know how to collaborate, right? And mm. that they know how to give feedback, whether they're, really they're students really or teachers. Point, because collaboration is not just getting along with people. What We're really talking about some norms around how do you how do you add value right how do you right. give feedback that's that's useful because the same things how to listen how to give and how to your, share yeah your colleagues can just tell you like hey you what you're we like you <laughs> that doesn't necessarily help me as a teacher those are three right? words i've yeah. never heard <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's it's i think it's a really good point is that there's an assumption dj right it's a really good point you made that we assume that people know how to collaborate 
in an educational, educational setting, whereas what we've really been trained to do is to work and study individually because ah, there's a curve. If I help the person next to me, I decrease the likelihood of my getting a grade. And so the flip side of that collaboration is creating a classroom or setting a norm that is cooperative rather than competitive. And I think that is really a hard thing to shift with students. You mean competitive amongst other teachers? You might get some... Oh, well, I would never say among, that. Okay. <laughs> no, what were you talking about, among students? I'm talking about, among students oh, okay. and the Sorry. collaboration and the cooperation. Yeah. Yeah. I think the problem with the teachers is that, that, sent, that isolation, which, Francis, I think you were talking about, and I remember, I think it was like my senior year in college, which I think took me 12 years, and um, it's true, it's true. And I said, okay, why don't I take one of these career assessment... Myers-Briggs or something? No, it wasn't a Myers-Briggs um, introvert-extrovert thing because I turned out to be psychotic on that. We know but, that. Yeah. Um, no surprise. But, it, okay, you guys, be nice, be nice. But it was like, what is your your vocational interest? What job would be perfect for you? And I answered all the questions, and it comes back that I either should have been a salesman or a teacher because I like to be independent. And I think that's an amazingly interesting perception or perspective right, yeah. that independence and teachers associated, whereas what I miss the most is the opportunity to interact with other teachers and learn from them. And I know that that's, I think, the major reason Tony and I are doing the podcast, is it's just the play back and forth. Of, and it's why I listen. Well, we have one listener. Yes. <laughs> but I think that's an interesting point about this. The cooperation is not just for teachers or students. It's both ways. It's well, so I'm, I'm curious in that um, having been in several different countries, I realize that uh, different cultures have different values oh, around yeah. education. <laughs> Japan is known for having one of the most collaborative teaching cultures in Japanese public schools. The uh, yeah. public schools. Japanese lesson study is is often put out as a model. Right? Is, what age is this? Because my children have been through the Japanese system and I think that is very true. Elementary school. I know nothing And about. they are great. Japanese elementary schools and they're always working in their groups and they do lots of activities. And then my daughter's now in junior high school and it's, okay, it was really great in elementary school, but now you're just going to memorize everything when you get to junior high school. Uh, so I think this is based on the Japanese elementary school. Oh, uh, maybe so. I, yeah, I, I yeah. would. But I have another question about the culture, that having been trained and having worked in other countries as a teacher and a teacher trainer and going back to the idea of being evaluated as a teacher and having anybody just walk into your classroom with a clipboard, never was that an issue with anyone particularly, uh, maybe case by case, until I came here to Japan. That is, that it was assumed that people would be giving you feet up. People meaning your colleagues. Take notes your teaching. The, yeah, that and and in, you know that your students would also be more critical because you wouldn't have the sweet, adorable Japanese students we have now. Yes, you know, but they would be from some at that time Eastern Bloc country who would be like, I hate you. <laughs> your grammar, my grammar is better than yours, <laughs> or something like that. And again, until I came to Japan. Hmm. culture. And it's the teaching culture 
Again, I've only worked at the university level here, so I don't, I can't address anything else. But at other places where you've worked, DJ, has there been situations where there was collaborative learning between the teachers? Is, is that common in other countries? I well, the the other aspect that I need to just announce is that um, I'm in an international school context, right? So even when I have worked in other countries, the international school is is itself kind of an island in yes, that country. That's true. Um, so I don't know that they're necessarily representative of those cultures. And they cultures. were all IB affiliates. No. No, not all. I don't know if our audience knows what IB is. Um, International Baccalaureate. Um, it's in uh, over 130 countries. It's got three programs, the primary years program uh, for young kids, middle years program, um, basically grades 6 through 10, and then the diploma program, which is the last two years of high school. So it's very uh, demanding uh, academically. It's an academically very rigorous program. Um, it is designed with the diploma program to lead to a credential that allows kids to go to their university in their home country. So a lot of different, a lot of different countries, and it's got an, an ideological aim of um, promoting international mindedness, uh, global citizenship, um, you know, intercultural understanding, and so on. And also, a student who graduates with that IB, it's accepted at many universities throughout is, the yeah. world, right? Yeah. So that you don't have to. Do all the lot of the Correct. paperwork of like what this course yeah. means and transcripts yeah. and so parents out there it will save you. Well, and this pain is, later. It, right now it's it's big in Japan right now because the Ministry of Education next is wants to have two hundred uh, schools Japanese schools take on the IB diploma program in the next five years. Um, right now, after two years in, they've got seven. And you should really stop right now because I think this is going to be one of the things you and I are going to talk about later. We okay. don't want to give away the show. But All right. A future show. <laughs> it's a future show that um, we've just cut off right now. But. Yeah. yeah. There's in, well, a good one. Uh, interesting things happening in terms of international education, I think, and you know, what are the goals and so on. It's interesting stuff. Yeah. Okay, so... We've gone through this interesting discussion. Now, okay, so what has changed for you the most? If we go back to that original thing, right? question, yeah. what's the, the one, one major thing. thing that has really changed for you from when you started out, however many years ago as an educator, and that really influences you and affects you the most, that is kind of divergent from when you originally became an educator? Allison, and you're not, you're not, you're shaking your, not nodding your head. This is shaking, I think, and this is nodding. Right? No change. No change. Nothing has changed. You had the right tack right from the beginning. I was again. I before I. I'm, I was really a very was, bright person. <laughs> I'm not saying that, <laughs> but um, I was well trained before I started. I trained myself. I had training along the way. I did my master's, which was a practicum master's, before I came here. Um, had some other international experiences, starting all the way from high school. Um, so, changes? No, I was already, and all my parents and all my family are all teachers, so going back to, I think it was DJ who said, kind of natural born teacher, gosh darn it, anyway, um, the only thing that has really changed for me here in Japan is trying to accept, and now I have, but when I first started, accept the idea of this is ostensibly a lower level of education. For me to teach. My teaching style is the same. I'm very much a 
an animated get to know the students, be happy, make jokes, get them talking, heads up learning. I don't like textbooks if possible. Kind of a teacher. And fun. Just like, ah! <laughs> you know, all, all of those evaluations. She was fun. I'm not sure they learned. Actually, I think they did learn. But coming to grips with the fact that the content courses that I'm teaching at the third year university level are things that we learn in high school. And so just having to deal with that. Again, the kids are great. Love the kids. But it goes back to that word, kids. And it's not university. And just that mental shift and of expectations really is my one major change. Not my teaching itself. For me... Um, since I started working in university, I think the big change is to do with the demographics in Japan, yeah. with the falling number of students entering Japanese university, the level of the students and the universities become a little bit more desperate to accept anyone. Um, and the students, um, their enthusiasm for studying, and a lot of the students, one of the big things in Japan is a lot of the students think, I've entered university, so I've reached my goal, and now I'm just going to relax for four years until I start work. Whereas, especially coming from the UK, you enter university, and from there you've really got to study hard and you've exactly. got to work hard. And that is something, um, I don't know if it's a change, but it's something I find very, very frustrating that they have these four years and they have so many opportunities and they almost view classroom time as time that just has to be spent. And when the classroom time's over, then they can go and do their club activities and their part-time job and things that they want to. They really, you talked about life lifelong learning and they really don't have this sense they think I graduated from high school I did it you're so much more tactful <laughs> it's an attractive quality <laughs> well I, I've heard that said about uh, well I, I, it's true in the Chinese cult, um, cultures I've lived in in the past too that the, the big task was just getting to university once you're there nobody flunks out in Taiwan nobody flunks out of college it's you know, it's it's kind of like in elementary school, your sole task is to get into the number one middle school. Oh, yeah. From middle school, get in the number one high school, get in the number one college, and then you're set. Yes. Right? That's not the situation I have here. My, my kids that I have now, they're very much looking to the next school. And there's enormous pressure on them to get into name brand schools, right, um, in North America or the U.K. typically. That um, yeah, that that defines their success. But I think, am I right that the number of uh, Japanese students who want to go to international school is increasing? Uh, or is it difficult in international school to attract students to? Well, there's a limiting factor just by our tuitions, right? Oh, right. So the international school tuitions are pretty high, right? So that's there's a limiting factor right there. Yeah. 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 I'm making outrageous faces right now. As somebody who's paying those tuitions. Which you talk about a very key difference. Like your students are looking for the next school. Our students, that just like your Chinese students, 
the this is way teaching right. university. They've already crossed that hurdle. Right. Yeah. So they're they're in. They got into their university. They're going to yeah. get into, and now it's kind of like coast until they start doing yeah. their job hunting. Well, you know, it's it's they, not dissimilar from really high achieving schools that I've been in, where where the number one threat is complacency. You know, if you've you've got really good students. I who achieve the a lot. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I am talking about the teachers. I'm talking about the, te- the, the, the institution as a whole, right? It's, it's that, oh, well, we're already getting kids into, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, whatever. So, so we don't really need to work on improving. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I teach at one very, very good university, and uh, that's one problem I don't have. The kids are extremely motivated. Really, very, very um, But getting back to that, that idea of change, um, I think that goes a little bit about what you talked about when you came to Japan. I, and I guess, for me, it's and it kind of echoes some of the things that you guys talked about at the very beginning, um, about adapting to the classes and, and listening to the students and paying attention to the students and um, actually figuring out exactly how the students want, need to be taught. Because I, I don't, if, as cynical as I may appear at times. You never appeared cynical to me, yeah, all right. Tony. Yeah. Um, Fingers crossed. And I, I do walk into the classroom assuming that the, the students do want to do a good job. They want to do, they do want to, they, they really do want to do it. Um, and, it, and it really is up to the teacher to figure out how to, how to make all that work. Well, I will, yeah. I will, whatever it takes That's is right. my key phrase. Whatever <laughs> it takes, and um, really paying attention to that feedback loop, um, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, and adapting what you're doing. And I, and I think over the years I've done that. It hasn't been a big adaptation, um, but it's been a, a lot less of do it my way, and uh, a lot more flexibility, and a lot more thinking on your feet. And it's one of my the big things that I always get on my high horse about teacher autonomy, because um, you know how can I how can I write a syllabus if I haven't met the students yet? I don't know, no, no, what you know? Who am I teaching? And what do they need? Because what do they want? How do they need to talk? Semester. Every class is different. Every class is different. Every class has got talked about matching the character and personality. Every classroom is a different personality. They need to be treated in a different way. They need to be taught in a different way. They need different things. They learn in different ways. And you got to have the flexibility to be able to do that and, and perceive that, look at it on the first day, and adapt and, do, and change your plan and make it work the way you want it to work. Uh, and if it's one thing that I've done, it's, it's, it's learned how to do that, maybe, a little bit better. And you? Who are you pointing to? <laughs> Allison, I think is Allison, you wanted to make a comment though. No, I had a question. By, oh, sure. by when you said you no longer make them... Do it your way. Are you implying a type of teacher-centered approach? You, you switch to a more student-learner-centered approach? Or are you talking about the coordinator, a coordinated program, and you like to do it more your own way? Uh, don't start Tony on coordinated programs, Oh, no, no, okay? no that, that'll be no. <laughs> we don't want to go down. But that what path. did you mean by that? Well, I'm going way back to when I came, started teaching here in Japan 23, 24, 25 years ago without a lot of hardcore teaching experience and basically out of insecurity and you know uncertainty what to do. You have a certain idea of what a class is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be taught and what you're supposed to cover and what the teacher does and what the student does. And 
when things started like not going well, the impulse is to adhere back to what you have on your lesson plan and make the students conform to the lesson plan rather than look at what's happening in the classroom. How do you adapt this lesson plan to these kids? Give them a longer, give them a, give them a longer leash. Let them, let them tell you how they need to be taught. What do they need to hear? Uh, and pay attention to that and, and, and learn to trust it. I see. And to give over that that. Um, give over control. What are you talking give about? Give over that control. <laughs> and that, but you know, and that's become a big thing for me. Yeah. But all of this seems to get back to me is maintaining teacher motivation. There you go. So um, TJ said something about complacency, and um, it's easy to become complacent in Japan because we are not trying to get our students into a better school or a better college. Yeah. So yeah. The, t- the students can be complacent, but the teachers as well. Like, there are not really clear goals that the teachers are aiming for, and they can just pass through the semester. And I think maybe this is a big thing, that teachers have to find their motivation so that they are trying to improve and teach better. And I think maybe that's a big problem, that some teachers have lost some of that motivation, and they're just, um, you know, biding time. Yeah. Um, rather than yeah. actually working. I have to say, I have really low tolerance for it, uh, for that. I, I, I accept that it exists <laughs> for that position. I mean, that yes. position. The mindset, yeah. Because yeah, I see that with certain teachers. It's offensive. Yeah. It's offensive. It's poison. But again, I, I, uh, I work in an, a private independent school setting, right, where, where parents pay a lot of money. Is this right, Charles? They pay a lot of money to, for their kids to go to our school. And frankly, I believe that as a, I'm an educational professional, a professional like a doctor or a lawyer, right? Therefore, I expect my teachers to have that motivation. If they don't, they need to move on because I'll find somebody who does. Right, and, and you I have the power to get them to move on, and I they do. don't. <laughs> well, it's to me, it's a, a to me, I have a it's a moral responsibility, because if if you look at sorry, I'll just finish this off. If you look at the uh, the impact of a highly effective teacher on a student over the course of that student's lifetime, those students deserve the very best, right? And and it's a moral imperative. So I, I understand everybody deals with, you know, motivation and, you know, the systems can kill you, right? I mean, remember Mark Twain's quote, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. Absolutely. Right? You know, schools can, can really be destructive. Aren't you glad that students are not listening to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, mine are, actually. A lot of mine are. Well, what, no, what I wanted to emphasize was the fact that it really came across that Tony is still motivated. After 25 years, he's going into the class and he's thinking, how can I reach these students? How can I improve? And that is what every teacher should be doing. And, you know, there are so many teachers out there who are doing it, and you meet them. But unfortunately, you do meet teachers who are not doing it, and um, that's, that's really the problem. More and more people who are coming here, though, are coming to Japan because they want to be yes. in Japan. Not just ending up here, and they're they're getting their training here, and it's great, great to see. You're getting your PhD. Congratulations. You know, I, I, I just I think Tony also pointed to the future. We've been talking about the past, what's changed, and I, I think your comments um, point to the to the future of, of education because 
we've been in a situation now with school as, you know, this sort of, here's the syllabus, you know, you need to learn X amount of material. We have the class, you know, occurs between 9 a.m. and 10.15, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or whatever it is. And the, the time is fixed, but the learning is variable. And I think what we're, see, what we're going to see happen is that's going to get inverted and that the, the learning is going to be fixed and that the time will become variable, which will require us to be a lot more flexible and adaptive. So that if a student can master this material in three weeks' time, we're not going to keep them in there for three months, right? Move on and learn the next bit, right? Um, we're, we're, it's an exciting time in education. It's a very exciting time. Okay, wrap it up. Yeah, it's kind of like following Jimi Hendrix at the Monterey Jazz Festival. <laughs> well, you're the man. Yeah, I think that <laughs> there's going to be a lot of laughing and guffawing at this point. But I think that's right. When we look at the future, you know, the idea of time being fixed and how education has been set is one thing. I think the other thing is that just a lot of excitement in education. You know, a lot of evidence-based teaching and what we can know. And I know that, for example, for me, the biggest difference is when I started out was the belief that my passion was enough. That if I was a passionate educator and I liked my students, that that was enough. And I think the biggest change now is that I don't know enough yet. There's so much more that I can learn to be really, truly effective and to have a better impact on students. And I think that's a really exciting thing to have happening right now. Is that we do know that there's a lot of really committed, um, passionate educators out there. In fact, I'd have to say that most of the people I know who are educators and teachers are really, truly passionate people. And that there's a small percentage of people maybe who have burned out or have not. I think the proportion and the, por the percentage is, is improving. Yes, yes. Yeah. May, perhaps, perhaps. Oh, yeah. But, yes. you know, I look around and I think, um, DJ, you were mentioning about doctors and lawyers. Yeah. A group of people we really don't want to mention too often. <laughs> Professionals. Professionals. But it's this idea that you are, and to use that business model, there's that, that introduction of the idea that the student is a customer. And I think, that's a, I think I've mentioned this before in a discussion we've had, and that's a really bad metaphor. What we want to do is we want to look at the student as a client, as if you know, the student who comes to, or the lawyer, or comes to the consultant and says, I have needs, I need an analysis, we need to work together. And so what we have to do is really shift and see our students as clients who are engaging in an independent activity of learning, and at the same time that we are bringing a certain amount of expertise that we have to match up to their needs. And if we can do that, I think we're going to be really, really successful. But um, I do definitely agree with you, DJ, that it's a really exciting time. And you know, how do we take our individual quirks, personalities, goals? Well, those are the great things we can provide our right? students. And how do we provide that? But at the same time, one of the things that's really interesting is that as the noise level 
increases here, Charles says, I think I'll stop now and not meander anymore. So, yeah, so, this up. so this is a whole lot of teachers talking. There are five of us. With a here. whole lot of noise. With a whole lot of noise. By Led Zeppelin. Festive atmosphere here in downtown, downtown Osaka. Osaka. So, right. Well, thank you very much for Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Nice to meet you. Great discussion, you guys. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of, lot of valuable stuff here. And probably we're going to get comments finally from our audience about, why don't you invite more people <laughs> from outside to make yourself more interested? So we're going to listen to YouTube. So, this is... Two Teachers Talking. With... Allison Kitzman. DJ Condon. And Francis Yobara. Charles Wiz. And Tony Silva. Okay, so that was that was our uh, discussion there in, uh, in Umeda with uh, our uh, colleagues and... Uh, some pretty good stuff, I think. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, yeah, I'd like to see the enthusiasm of everybody. Well, that was yeah that all, that was one of the things. Um, uh, the I noticed that there were some real similarities and there's some real differences. And uh, the 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 one thing I guess the, the the common thread or the the similarities we talked about was yeah that um, enthusiasm and that recognition of uh, the importance of passion in the classroom right um along with which which kind of i guess surprised me but maybe it shouldn't surprise me the um shared appreciation for the new um science of teaching um really evidence-based teaching yeah evidence-based teaching the importance of that the just the awareness of it and then a recognition of the importance of it um I think that was interesting for me. Mm. Um, and the other thing that um, that um, maybe I guess a little su- surprised me that it was shared by so many, shared by just about everybody, uh, because it's one of my big basic ideas is the Im- importance of the connection between the student and the teacher. Right. And um, I was, I guess, you know, mildly surprised that oh, just about was universal at the table that everybody. Uh, kind of zeroed in on that as one of the key factors. Right. And I think that it's one of those things that you think is normal. You think that is a universally held truth, but somewhere lurking in the back of your mind, you think that maybe I'm off kilter a little. That's not true. And then you sit down with four other people, four other educators, and you find out that, yeah, they also believe that to be true, that that's one of the real keys to being effective in the classroom is that teacher-student relationship that moves both ways, mm-hmm. right? I also like the, the idea of always learning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That everybody seemed to embrace that, you know, nobody had to take a course to learn that, right? <laughs> but just that that's the belief that it's, this is something that we're always, you know, moving forward on, engaged in t- with learning extra things. So that was nice. Yeah, but I think yeah. Tony, you also have this feeling that it was kind of like uh, the three blind men and the elephant story. Yeah, whether it's three, four, five, or six, whatever. Yeah, the blind, the blind, the blind men and the was elephant. it three blind men or six blind men and the elephant? Are you trying to tell me that my numbers? Wikipedia, Wikipedia says oh, they're all over the place, but a, a general search usually the number is usually six. It's six blind men. And there's so many versions of the story. It's three blind mice. There's, there's Buddhist versions and in Hindi versions. There's, it's it's it's. It's kind of interesting. To see are are they different, by the way? Are they significant? Uh, this is another podcast. 
I don't. I, yeah, I didn't. I didn't go that far. I just, I just was unsure about the number. <laughs> okay, but you felt that it was like the that story, right? Because, yeah. and do you care to explain that a little bit? Well, yeah, because um, despite all those, uh, you know, those that the common thread, it was also for me very interesting to, to um, listen to the uh, different perspectives based on people's positions, right? So there are a couple of people in. Um, administrative supervisory positions, and they envisioned the the problems one way. And uh, there's also the, the the perspective of the full time teacher teacher, and the teaching teachers got kind of reduced administrative roles, and basically just a teacher teaching, but in a full time capacity. And then also the perspective of the, the part time teacher. Uh, the foot soldier, moi. <laughs> but um, it, interesting to see how people's work roles affected their perspective on the problem. So that was interesting for me too. Mm. Yeah, the whole discussion, it was nice to have other people so that I didn't have to hear myself as much and I got to hear less of you and I'm sure that you felt good about that with me too. But the idea of people talking, and sharing their ideas. And I think that I picked up that people like that. People like to be able to talk about their ideas and share their ideas and explore in it how they approach things either in similar or different ways. Well, let me, let me, let me just tweak that a little bit because it's, you know, um, what's something that I've observed with teachers? Teachers have no problem talking. <laughs> teachers talking. We have that title for a reason. Teachers, we talk. <laughs> but uh, I think the key part is not the talking, but the listening. Okay. Listening to other people's ideas and, and, and hearing what they have to say. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, we do enjoy talking. Maybe we, maybe we enjoy talking too much. I mean, you let us, we'll just go on and on and on. Oh, speak for um, yourself, Tony. The, the, key, <laughs> the key is is actually listening to other people's ideas and see, see what they've got, see what's going on, and see what we can learn uh, from them. Right. Well, I, that's a good point. And I know that one of the things that I miss is not being able to observe other teachers working. You know, I don't want people coming in to watch my teaching so much. As yeah, I, exactly. I was, really? was just going to say that. It was exactly. It was right. like, no, the value I would like to watch watching... others and see what other people are doing, but I don't want someone watching me. Right. Uh, but I'm saying the value of watching somebody else work their classroom and really just watching that and learning from that, I think, is valuable. Extremely. Yeah, you really can learn a lot. And But, you know, but at the same time, is that you, when you talk about someone like watching you, it's kind of the uncertainty principle, right? It's like Said it, right. someone else in the classroom is, okay, nothing is normal anymore. Everything is different. Well, Everything that's what Fra changes. Right? Frances mentioned that in her talk where the right. person comes right. into her classroom with it's the like, well, clipboard everything on. Is, everything's changed now. Everything's changed. So, But I think we we had a good talk. I, it was nice to hear everybody's ideas and opinions, and I think we need to say thank you to our three guests. Absolutely. Who, who did a who did a really good job? I mean, they really did a, a fine job. It was a lot of good information, a lot of good um, different you know, perspectives, input, and stuff. Um, and you know, yeah, we say the most convenient, but not convenient. I mean, there was no there was no compensation. <laughs> There's right. it's a it's their weekend. It's their Sunday afternoon. It's. We want to um, say thank you to those people for coming in on their own you. time, giving up, what, about two-plus hours? Two-plus, yeah. Right, to just 
participate and share their ideas out of the the goodness of their hearts. Yep, absolutely. So thank you, guys. Yeah, Francis, DJ, Allison, thank you very much. And uh, we appreciate it and enjoyed it. And thank you, Charles, for setting all that up. Oh, well, thank you, and thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you, and thank thank you, listeners, for putting up with us for yet another week. And Tony, again, comes up with an incredible rap for our episode. So (laughs) this is Charles Wiz. And Tony Silva. And we were five teachers talking back to two teachers talking. Back to two. Don't be lonely. Right? Two teachers talking... (laughs) Dot com, two teachers talking at gmail.com. We're two teachers talking on iTunes. We have some other two teachers talking stuff, don't we? But you can find it basically wherever we are, that's where we are. Right. <laughs> We're two, two teachers, teachers talking. Wherever you go, there you are. What was that? That's the Buckaroo Bunzai. I barely remember that. Yeah. Wherever you go, there we are. Okay. And with that, I will <laughs> say I do. <laughs> okay, Tony. See you. All righty. Bye bye. Bye.